Welcome to the podcast of Tech.eu, Europe's premier technology industry information portal and market intelligence platform. This is our episode number 115, recorded on April 23rd, 2019. Today we are going to talk about nudge techniques and dark patterns, about SME instrument projects, about the fate of Wicked Tribune, and much more. I am your host, Andre Degeler, joined today, as usual, by our research lead, Natalie Novik. Hey, Natalie, how is it going? Hi, Andre. It's going well. Feeling really energized after such a great sunny and long weekend. How about yourself? Yeah, about the same. I am feeling energized in my head, uh, not that much in my body, since I spent uh, most of the weekend either cycling or running around uh, after a uh, plastic disc aka ultimate frisbee but it's, it's been a really great time and i think it is the first time ever that i went for a cycling trip for like three days and for the whole time we had uh, sunny weather without uh, much wind without much rain without anything at all so yeah feeling great over here is it still sunny uh, up in edinburgh um the sun is going out a little bit now but it's still quite warm and uh had such a great weekend so so that is just a great way to start my week over here. Nice. I do hope that we are going to have at least uh, some of this weather in the summer because the Netherlands is not uh, really known for very warm uh, summer months. Now, let us talk about the deals and uh, the technology scene over the past week. Uh, what was the biggest deal this time? Yeah, so the deal we're highlighting this week is went to France where the Workforce Learning Platform 360 Learning, they raised a 36.5 million Series B round. It's a really interesting company, and they talked about becoming the Instagram of learning, but their platform is actually a lot more complicated, and they have tons of different offerings for onboarding new professionals, but also upskilling existing employees. Uh, you have great collaborative working capabilities with this. It, it looks like a very interesting company. So most of the, what they do is in French. So I look forward to seeing it kind of broaden its horizons and scale further uh, because it looks like a really valuable uh, space. So how is it Instagram for learning? Do they have like uh, square shaped pictures to go through? You know what? I really was surprised to see kind of that quotation associated with this 360 learning because it looks like they do so much more than just that. It's a collaborative platform, fully integrated with different types of learning tracks on, on board. So think about kind of these online courses like Udemy or edX. It's very similar to that. Um, organizations can offer many different types of kind of training platforms for, for their employees for onboarding, as I said earlier, but also for teaching and different sorts of competencies, kind of peer-to-peer -peer feedback, lots of really cool things there. So I look forward to seeing what comes next from them. Right. Yeah, over the whole time that I was employed by any company at all, I've only once worked for like a bigger company. And I do remember that the whole uh, learning and uh, knowledge sharing uh, with an organization can be can be hard. So I do hope that companies like this make it easier for uh, people on uh, all uh, levels uh, to approach it. 
Now, let us talk now about the stories and interviews, and I wanted to rectify <laughs> a mistake of mine uh, from last week. Not really a mistake, but just failure to explain something. So last week, I was talking about the Online Harms white paper um, by the UK's DSMS, and I also mentioned another initiative that has to do with so-called dark patterns. So today, I wanted to talk a bit more about uh, this one, uh, because I struggled to explain what it is a week ago, and... It's a really interesting uh, thing, it turns out. So let's see what's going on. The new document uh, that's there to regulate online platforms in the UK is coming from the Information Commissioner's Office, or ICO in the UK. So, And this paper, it is entitled Age Appropriate Design, a Code of Practice for Online Services. It is a hundred-odd page long document uh, that uh, outlines 16 standards of age-appropriate design. And these uh, go from data minimization and setting the privacy setting to high by default, uh, all the way to parental controls and uh, uh, the nudge techniques that I was talking about. And the proposed fines in case a company fails to comply are in line uh, with the GDPR that is up to 4% of the company's annual turnover. That is billions of uh, euros if we are talking about companies like Google or uh, Facebook or Apple. So let's talk about the nudge techniques quickly. Uh, these uh, things, aka dark patterns, aka many other definitions, are what I mentioned last week. And the definition given in the paper is that nudge techniques are the design features that lead or encourage users to follow the designer's preferred paths in the user's decision making. Just as an example, these include choice windows uh, where the yes option would be more prominent than the no option. You know, there's a big green yeses against uh, uh, small uh, uh, plain no's and stuff like that. On, but on the other hand, uh, having the moving goals that Apple Watch or other fitness trackers uh, set for the users monthly, those are also uh, nudge techniques and basically positive uh, reinforcement loops. So among other techniques, uh, the document specifically mentions likes and streaks that can be used to, I quote, nudge or encourage users to stay actively engaged with the service, allowing the online service to collect more personal data, the quote ends. And by the way, in case you don't know what streaks are, I didn't know that either, uh, they are used by Snapchat to show how many days in a row you sent messages to a certain user. I do think think that uh, this probably works very well uh, to keep uh, the kids uh, uh, hooked uh, to the service. So in general, uh, the paper is quite broad in uh, definitions and uh, measures that the platforms have to take to comply. But the mention of likes and streaks in particular uh, triggered many media outlets to say that these particular mechanisms will be banned for children's use in the UK. However, the Deputy Information Commissioner, uh, Steve Wood, in his comment for the BBC said that it's not necessarily the case. So here's what he said exactly. I really would like to clear that up from the outset, actually. We've seen some of the headlines today talking about banning the like button for children, and we've not put any um, any proposals about that in in our document today. It's something people have have read into it. What we're talking about is 16 standards we've launched in our, our draft code of practice for protecting children's privacy online, and we've we've focused on things like profiling. So where children are, are profiled online, so a picture is built up around children, and part of that picture can be built up from when they they click like buttons, so it builds up a, a profile, a pen picture of who they are as individuals. And that can be used to do things like target content at them. So it can be used on, on social media that 
if you've liked these sorts of things, then a picture is built up to feed more content. That is clearly of concern when content can be addictive or can really actually have a detrimental effect on um, on young people. So this sounds quite sensible, I have to say, and I generally do like uh, the way the paper is uh, written and designed. So I do hope uh, that uh, things get better in the UK. But of course, there also are opponents uh, to this new proposed regulation and uh, uh, to voice uh, uh, the criticism, the BBC also quoted Matthew Lesh, the head of research of the Adam Smith Institute think tank, who said the following, the quote begins, The ICO is an unelected quongo introducing draconian limitations on the internet with the threat of massive fines. It is ridiculous to infantilize people and treat everyone as children, the quote ends. So be it as it may, right now the proposal is up for public consultation, which will end on May 31st. And as far as I understand, the ICO wants this proposal to become law as early as this summer, and uh, this would come into effect uh, next year. Hard to say whether it will help to solve the issues of bad online habits or unhealthy engagement with social networks, especially among the youth. But I do think that it is a step in the right direction. And it is also something that shows that the UK is uh, moving ahead of the rest of uh, Europe uh, with this. Natalie, what do you think? What's your take? So it automatically makes me think of a few things. First, in terms of app usage, it makes me think about online learning apps, such as language learning. So Duolingo, for example, uses the concept of streaks to encourage engagement, but also as a learning practice, because continual engagement with the foreign language, in the case of Duolingo, helps you learn better. So it will really depend how this is implemented. Um, and there's also a social aspect to many of these learning apps as well. So it makes me wonder how... Because they've left it quite open, it really depends um, how the, the regulators decide to eventually police these different practices. So I think kind of it's compelling in that they've kind of gone in this direction. But they've also left it open in some ways for some flexibility. So I'm not sure how that's going to work. But also from the UK, we do see a number of examples where bureaucratic agents are trying to police the internet and kind of the most kind of outstanding example where it's kind of come off in a negative way is with the UK's porn filter legislation, which is coming into place and something that that Wired um, has called one of the worst ideas ever. And so it kind of gives me some question, like I understand there's necessity for dialogue about these issues, but also the fact that we leave it open-ended for it to be legislated after the fact makes me wonder what the point is in some respects. Yeah, I, I have to I have to agree with that. But as far as I understand, in, in the case of uh, these age-appropriate uh, design principles, so I think uh, that uh, ICO said very clearly that uh, it's not necessarily uh, the patterns uh, themselves that will get uh, banned or limited or regulated, but uh, rather the goals that uh, uh, they want to achieve. I think they uh, actually even stated in the paper itself that it is appropriate to use, uh, for example, nudge techniques uh, in order to 
for example, have uh, uh, the kids to uh, put their privacy settings uh, uh, to a higher level or to take uh, breaks uh, while uh, being on uh, certain apps and so on and so forth. So in this case, I think they they, they do realize uh, that it is sort of a double-edged sword. Uh, like a, a bigger problem here, of course, is the, the whole age verification uh, thing. So like how do you verify that uh, the person using the app right now is uh, a kid or an adult? And... Uh, one of the comments uh, that uh, Wood uh, made in that radio show that I quoted earlier was that basically if your app is likely to be used by children, then you should implement all these uh, 16 uh, uh, rules uh, in the code. Uh, this brings us back to this uh, criticism that I also quoted before, like treating everyone as children is exactly what the ICO is doing. But at the same time, I mean, there are children using these platforms and uh, they do have to be uh, children friendly and they do have to uh, help form uh, better habits in uh, online behavior. Well, and but online age verification is very challenging and one of the externalities of greater checks over kind of this online content when it comes to age is that it will push young people into different parts of the web, different alternatives that might not have this same sort of policing, that might be more vulnerable spaces online, that might have even greater harms that are unable to be kind of policed by these watchdogs. I think there's something like 3,000 apps come out on the app store every single day. So it keeping up with this technology is always going to be very difficult. And it's very much on the onus of, of these companies when they're producing this um, these products to kind of ensure best practices. But it's very difficult for them to have an effective mechanism of ensuring that everything is proper and, and right for consumers. Yeah, and I'm sorry for another retro gaming reference, but every time I hear about age verification online, I do remember this uh, old uh, PC games, not even PC games. I think they were on uh, Spectrum computers like uh, 25 or 30 years ago. And some games uh, like Letters with Larry, and they would have this age verification uh, system uh, where they would ask you questions that supposedly only adults uh, can answer. And then, uh, of course, there were all sorts of uh, text files uh, going around together with the games with the lists of the questions and the right answers, like what to answer in order to make the game think that you're adult and uh, show you the full versions of uh, whatever things uh, there were. I don't think, <laughs> I'm not really sure how far the whole age verification thing uh, uh, has uh, gone since uh, 30 years ago, though. <laughs> Because young people and, and children are very sophisticated online. And there's always these examples of kind of parents that their their kids are able to break into any of any of the, these different software. And you would think that they wouldn't be able to. But children are very sophisticated uh, with these different types of technology. I mean, they grew up using it and kind of born into this um, digital native experience. So I think it is going to be very hard and they will be so creative at getting around whatever sort of check that you have. It's kind of like choose your age um, when everyone was born on January 1st, 1900 um, in the in the kind of drop down <laughs> box. That's not going to work anymore. <laughs> yeah. Underestimating uh, children is the biggest mistake. Definitely. 
uh, in this in this respect. Okay, let's move forward in our agenda. Natalie, what did you want to talk about this week? Yeah, so this week I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the new projects that have been funded under the European Commission's SME instrument. Earlier this month, the European Commission announced the newest group of 277 small and medium-sized enterprises that were selected for funding from the latest round of the European Innovation Council's SME instrument. I want to take a little time to highlight some of these companies as well as some of the work that the Commission is doing to support SMEs. Despite the European Commission being one of the world's largest funders of early stage companies, I think sometimes their programs don't get enough attention. But the SME instrument, for example, has been used by companies of all different sizes to scale, build their companies, and bring products to market. Continually, I hear great examples of companies using SME funding to scale to the U.S. or to develop a new product line or to take their company um, into a new geography. So the SME instrument specifically funds companies different sizes, so usually small and medium, but kind of how they include that is is kind of a very diverse definition. So no matter where you are in the startup process, if you're not a unicorn, of course, there's likely an avenue of support for you. So since opening the program in November 2017, the commission so far has received 2,822 proposals for funding. For this specific round, which closed in February, the 277 successful SMEs will share a total of 13.7 million euros to bring their innovations to market. And they came from 25 different countries, and Spain garnered the most successful proposals with 46 funded projects followed by Switzerland at 23 projects and France with 22. These results might not be a surprise to readers of our most recent report that we showcased at Startup Olay last month. There, we shared an in-depth analysis of the successful Horizon 2020 SME projects total since the beginning. And we showed that over time, Spain has far and away been the most successful country in attracting this funding. So it's something that companies from all countries across Europe can take advantage of, but Spain has been the most successful. So I wanted to highlight some interesting companies that that received funding in this most recent round. And Andre, I know you will agree with me that since the right number of bikes to own is always N plus one, the first innovation that caught my eye comes from Vienna, Austria, which is the Velo bike, which is a self-charging electric folding bike. And it sets itself apart for its incredibly compact size, really great looks, integrated lighting, and a magnet-supported suspension. This is a really beautiful bike. I really want one, and I think I might have to make some room in our garage for one of those. Another cool project comes from Horsholm, Denmark, and it's called the Flood Frame, which is a life jacket for your house to safeguard against flooding. And it's this inflatable barrier that insulates your home in case there's flooding. It's so cool and something that where when I used to live in Germany, a lot of towns near us around this time of year could have really benefited from. 
And another cool project that got funded in this round comes from the Netherlands, and it's called Robird. And it comes from the company Clear Flight Solutions. And they produce a drone, which is in the shape of either a peregrine falcon or an eagle. And it mimics the movement of the raptor in use for bird control and agricultural applications or at airports to prevent bird strikes, which can cause aircraft damage and crashes. And finally, the last project I'll share from this round is from Seville's Mako Robotics, which has created the world's first robotic bartender. And he's called the Kimi Gastrobot. And this thing is really amazing looking. And he sits in this little pod that you can kind of take and put anywhere. And he serves drinks and food and can also have friendly conversations with guests and recognize repeat customers. So he's really designed to kind of maximize productivity. And you can serve 300 items per hour and sell 25 different products. And so the future is here. And thank you to the European Commission for helping make this a reality. So what do you think about this robotic bartender, Andre? <laughs> yeah, it looks amazing. This uh, egg-shaped uh, sort of pod on the website looks quite futuristic. Well, I mean, on the other hand, why not? I, I have to say, first of all, that I'm not uh, a fan of uh, small talk uh, conversations with uh, bartenders. I normally go to bars just to, to drink. But if this uh, bartender can uh, recommend me a good beer based on my taste... And uh, if uh, this bartender can uh, serve this beer uh, quickly and uh, reduce the lines and the waiting times, then I am all for it. Uh, this, is, this is a great thing to have. I do have to say that it looks a little bit too futuristic uh, for my taste. I would really... I wouldn't really hold my breath and uh, hope that it uh, uh, would come around uh, in... Uh, any foreseeable future, at least not in a way that can be actually used in uh, public uh, places. But generally, I think it looks amazing. So this product actually is launching later this year, and they're already taking pre-orders. So it might we might be seeing this thing sooner rather than later. Um, and I think tech should always be innovative, of course, but also delightful. And this is a product that really epitomizes both. But there's 273 more projects to check out. So I invite you to have a look at them at the link in our show notes. I also wanted to highlight the SME instrument this week because it's a it's a project that's in evolution. So in June, the program will be renamed as the EIC Accelerator Pilot, which for the first time will allow for the possibility to apply for grant or grant and equity financing. And just last week, the European Parliament approved the next phase for Horizon Europe, which will advance upon and improve the aims of the Horizon 2020 project, taking it into the next budget period of 2021 to 2017. So there's lots more opportunities than ever before. And I wanted to take a moment to make the call to our listeners to have a look to see if your startup might be eligible for funding under some of these programs. The EIC Accelerator Pilot has a total budget of more than 1.3 billion euros for 2019 to 2020. So the next deadlines are due on May 7th and May 19th, depending on what stage of the company you're at. So have a look in at the link in our show notes where we've left some links to the different programs so you can check your eligibility. And don't forget the European Commission, this is an organization that works for you. So make the most use of it. And they're very responsive um, and they work really well with startups and kind of let them know kind of 
where you are and what kinds of opportunities you're looking for. And they'll always get back to you um, because they're really there to serve you. So you might as well make use of the programs that they have out there. Yeah, this is a perfect, uh, perfect thing to to highlight because every time I talk to the people from uh, EIC, they're always on the lookout for startups. And I do think that somehow, for the reason that I cannot comprehend, it's not well known enough uh, in many countries uh, among uh, founders. So this is a great, uh, great source of support. And I think also there's kind of this presupposition that, you know, there's going to be a lot of kind of bureaucratic hurdles and the application process can be really challenging. But the companies that I know that have gone through the process, you know, they someone works with you and helps you develop your application and make sure that you put together something that has the best chance to be funded. So they will be very clear and honest with you if this is a project that fits within their purview. And they're very responsive in kind of making sure that companies that they know of the opportunities that are available to you. So so really kind of reach out and don't be afraid because it, it really is a significant amount of funding and it's um, equity free. So so take take that opportunity if, if you're eligible. So if you're a founder for whom it may be relevant or if you know one, make sure to show them uh, the links and uh, yeah, make use of, uh, of this thing. It's amazing. Now, let us talk about the event. Uh, last time, Natalie, you had a great overview of the first half of May. So now is the second half of May, right? So what uh, what should we expect uh, then? Right. So we're talking about the second half of May this week because May is a fully eventful month. Okay. So we'll start here May 16th and 17th in Tallinn, Estonia, where we have Latitude 59, which is kind of where the Nordics and Baltic tech ecosystems come together before the summer holidays. I will be there too. And I'm really looking forward to going back to Estonia, which is one of my favorite startup ecosystems. But at the same time on May 16th and 17th, you can go to Paris for VivaTech, where our founding editor, Robin, will be there releasing the latest tech.eu report. The next week on the 21st and 22nd, we have Impact 18 in Krakow, Poland. And this is one of the most important tech events in Central and Eastern Europe with 250 different speakers on four stages. And they'll be talking about the future of the digital economy and kind of bringing together stakeholders from business, science, and the public sector. I really love Krakow. It's a wonderful city and it's a great time of year to be there. So definitely check that out. And then moving on, May 30th and 31st in Sofia, Bulgaria, it's Digital K, which will be revealing what they're calling the password of digital transformation. So it's a very mysterious subtitle there, but it's always a great event that I, it's in super high demand. And I always hear really great things about this event. I haven't been there myself, but I would love to go someday. So if you can put Digital K on your calendar. Those are kind of the big top level events for May. But if there's something we've missed, check out the link in our show notes and you can kind of add any suggestions that you might have, or you can go to the event section of our website and see the whole overview of next month um, and plan your calendar. Yeah, I've only heard uh, good things about Digital K, but also about uh, Impact uh, Conference and Latitude and VivaTech. So this is a great month to go out there and uh, check out what's going on on the tech uh, conference scene. Now, moving on to the last uh, part of this podcast, the recommendation part. Uh, Natalie, do you remember uh, what uh, Wiki Tribune was? 
No, I actually do not remember Wiki Tribune. It was actually looking at it in our podcast notes is the first time I actually heard of it. And I Googled it and it was a bunch of things that I need. I need the full explainer, Andre. <laughs> yeah, I mean this uh, this answer kind of uh, it, it, it's a great uh, segue into the actual recommendation that uh, I wanted to make because this is pretty much what happened to Wiki Tribune. Nobody knows about it, or uh, even those people who get there don't really understand what's going on. So, Wiki Tribune was the brainchild of uh, Jimmy Wales, uh, the founder of uh, Wikipedia, and what he wanted to do with it is to apply the wiki approach to save journalism. This clearly has not happened, at least yet, and I wanted to share a story on Wired UK that looks into how the project is doing right now. I will quote one passage from the story just to give you a taste. The quote begins, Wales wanted to rescue journalism, but to his team, it was not clear whether he understood journalism in the first place. The quote ends. So it turns out that Wales has a pretty firm stance in favor of neutrality versus objectivity in journalism. And that's another debate uh, to be had, of course. It's a really big problem. But he also believes that uh, Wiki Tribune does not actually need professional journalists, uh, the same way that Wikipedia, for example, does not need professional encyclopedists. And uh, the first uh, the first uh, iteration of Wiki Tribune actually had a small staff of professional journalists. Now Wales is going to scrap that idea altogether and uh, only uh, get the whole uh, platform in hands of uh, amateur journalists and people who want to report uh, for no compensation at all. Two years after its launch right now, Wiki Tribune seems to have eaten through a pretty big chunk of the funding that it received in 2017, and that was over £500,000. In the first year, uh, they burned uh, over £100,000. I don't think there is information on the second year, but there is still some money to experiment, and now Wales is uh, doing so with the journalist-free model. But at the same time, he's also working on another idea, and that's a fact-checking platform. So check out the full story on Wired UK to learn more about this and do let us know what you think about this project and this approach and which side you're on on the whole objectivity versus neutrality debate. Natalie, do you have any stance on it at all? So I opened up Wiki Tribune and it's kind of interesting because the first couple of things you see are a bunch of claims about marijuana or cannabis regulation and legalization around the world. So it's interesting kind of the types of facts and types of stories that the um, community volunteers are kind of from uh, kind of promoting on the site. So that's kind of a the interesting point, but it, it, the kind of, UX of of the site um, is a bit challenging, and there's really kind of a lot of information to take in here. So the tags and tagging system, kind of very interesting. So I, I think there are some design issues with the site that might make it a bit challenging, and might might have been part of the reason why it hasn't been as successful. I'm sure this is. I'm sure this is how whales want it, really. And also, if you look at the website, you may notice uh, that some of the pieces have this uh, draft tag because Mm -hmm. those are actually drafts. 
So basically everybody is an author, everybody is an editor at the same time. So you can either write something or you can go into someone's draft and add information or edit or do whatever you want in order to have this like comprehensive uh, piece of uh, written journalism. So I do sort of get the idea here, but I don't think that this is uh, the way to save uh, journalism or whatever else really. Right. And like, I think it's a very pure idea, but I mean, here's a draft article. Fact check. Has Google banned the word no? I mean, <laughs> updated one week ago. I mean, I'm not very, com I'm not very convinced that this is the, the right way of going, but I appreciate his, this effort. Um, and interested to see kind of how this continues to evolve, but very interesting concept here. Right. So what, uh, what did you want to recommend this week then? Yeah, so I was trying to think of something that really provides a lot of value to me and where I spend a lot of time um, every week is on Twitter and kind of the quality of Twitter can be very highly variable kind of based on who you're following. Um, so someone I wanted to recommend on there, Twitter in the old days used to have this thing everyone used to do, follow Friday that seems to have fallen by the wayside. But so this week, um, kind of bring that back. I want to highlight someone I get a lot of value and I really enjoy following. And his name is Ethan Mollick. And he's a professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, which is one of the best business schools in the U.S. And his research is on innovation and entrepreneurship. But he's a great follow on Twitter because he's constantly sharing new academic studies on startups and entrepreneurship that have real takeaways that can really help you understand the landscape a lot better and really understand the work that we're doing in tech. Um, very well. And what's great about his tweets is kind of how he breaks these huge academic articles down into these like bite-sized key insights from the most current research. And he's always tweeting very high quality content. And just recently, he kind of shared how networks might help people find more interesting jobs rather than more high paying ones, or kind of how the importance of startups carry practices over from the companies where the founders used to work and kind of highlighting how that happens through research. Or, for example, the value of a shared culture in an organization, what that can do for your company and a startup that can help make better decisions more quickly with, with a very strong culture. Another thing he tweeted recently about how mentors can increase founding rates and success of new companies and how the quality of mentors matters for building companies. So always kind of taking these very big, sometimes very tenuous academic pieces and really like biting them down to really kind of nice takeaways. And I really enjoy that approach. It's a continual font of great information and food for thought. So for those of you on Twitter, he's my recommendation for the week. Ethan Mollick, I've liked so many of his tweets. I've learned so much from him. So I thought it'd be great to highlight kind of what he does to make everyone have a great I get a lot of great value out of Twitter. So check him out if that sounds like something that would be interesting to you. Perfect. Just followed Ethan uh, from my Twitter account. Let's uh, let's see how that uh, pans out. It seems like uh, we have very different, uh, like uh, we're different following, Natalie, uh, with you on Twitter. Every time you recommend someone, I, like it's never someone that I uh, that I follow already. 
And I think that's kind of great. And I think something with Twitter is it's so easy to get in these kind of filter bubbles of people that you know, or people that kind of you agree with their opinions. And so breaking out of that is is sometimes very difficult. And Twitter has this algorithm is kind of share you like people like this. So you should probably follow people that are also like this. And I think sometimes it's hard to discover really interesting people. And I'm familiar with Ethan's work because he's done a lot on crowdfunding, kind of the viability of businesses that have used crowdfunding or subscription models as as a, as a business model. And I'm very, very familiar with his academic work. And then I found Discovery, he has great Twitter as well. Uh, so sometimes it can be very hard to find um, great people to follow on Twitter. And sometimes there's great people on Twitter that, that you really kind of love the work they do, but then it's lots of cat videos or memes. Um, so, and that can be sometimes very difficult. Right. right. So if you have uh, your own recommendations of uh, whom we or the rest of the listeners should follow, please go ahead and send them to us on Twitter or on email. We will uh, definitely check them out and uh, read them out loud on the next episodes of the podcast. As for today's episode, uh, this is it. I do hope you enjoyed listening. If you are not a subscriber yet, subscribe today on your favorite podcast app. If you are listening on iTunes, please take a minute to leave us a review because this will help others find the show and mean a lot for ourselves. Tell a friend or colleague uh, for whom it will be relevant about this podcast and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU. Audio engineering for this podcast is done by SoundPulse. That's sound-pulse.com. Please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions, and opinions at andri at tech.eu and natalie at tech.eu. Natalie, thank you so much for joining today. Thanks for having me, Andre. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the rest of your week. Enjoy the sun if you're in a sunny place and talk to you next Wednesday. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.